Luke 23, verses 44 through 56, the death of Jesus. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness the sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man, who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. This is the word of the Lord. So obviously one of the other things that makes this week unique is that I'm preaching, not something I do more than a couple times a year, so certainly uh, appreciate your grace in that. And normally I would say what we do here at Cornerstone is a very expository form of preaching where we take a text and we really dive into that text uh, specifically. And as I prepared this sermon, it ended up turning a little bit more into a topical sermon uh, in some ways on the death of Jesus. So that is also a little bit unique. Please pray with me as we begin to look at his word today. Father God, we come before you thankful for your scripture, thankful for the gift you've given it, given in it. We pray that you would help us to handle it well, whether we're reading it at home, studying it alone, reading it at church, or certainly preaching it. Lord, I pray that you would have this message be honoring to you, Lord. I pray that the preparation that you led me through would come out today in a message that honors you and helps us grow closer to you, helps us to understand you better, and more importantly, turns our heart towards you in a way that helps us live more in line with how our Savior lived. We ask these things in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I want to start by telling you about the night that I killed Ted Morris. Tommy Pegage opened his court-mandated appearance at the Trigg County High School MAD meeting with those trembling words. Standing in the back of the gym was Elizabeth Morris, Ted's grieving mother. In time, she would find it in herself to not simply forgive, but to unofficially adopt the young man who had collided with her son while driving drunk. Her husband, Frank, a part-time preacher and UPS driver, would with his own hands baptize Tommy. 
Years later, Tommy still called his new parents every day between 4 and 5 p.m. Though Tommy had no right to expect anything from them, Ted's parents opened the door of their life to Tommy. And in the process, everything changed. We've had an opportunity these last few weeks to do something that a lot of churches don't do. A lot of times, the week before Easter, we preach on the triumphal entry, and then on Easter, we look at the Garden of Gethsemane, the arrest, the trials, the crucifixion, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection all in one sermon that often focuses on the resurrection. But we've had the opportunity to have sermons on that night in the garden, Jesus' trial. Uh, Last week, Terry preached on the crucifixion. And tonight, we're going to really focus on the death of Jesus. Tomorrow, if you can come back in the morning, Terry's going to lead us through a homily on the resurrection and bring this full circle. But it's really an opportunity to dive deeper into texts that we sometimes speed right through. The Apostle Paul, in Philippians 3, 10, and 11, wrote this, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. You see, Paul didn't stop at wanting to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Sometimes we just take that 310A, and that's what we stop with. But Paul says he wants to understand and know his sufferings, and to be like him in his death. So I think when we look at this, we're honoring those words of Paul and trying to Make Philippians 3, 10, and 11 something that we can believe and agree with Paul on, all of it. I probably don't need to go too much into the context or background of our passage today. It's one that's familiar to a lot of people. But I do want to focus a little bit on the suffering of Jesus. Remember that he went that night before his arrest to pray in the garden and took some of his disciples with him. He asked them to pray with him. He went off and prayed so hard that he had drops of blood mixed with his sweat. His disciples fell asleep. Then one of his disciples, Judas, betrayed him, handed him over to be arrested. And before that next morning's trial, another disciple of his, Peter, denied him three times. I think we often skip over that part of the suffering of Jesus, but can you imagine if you were going through a tough time in your life and that's how your friends were supporting you? Falling asleep, betraying you, denying you. Jesus then endures mocking, multiple trials, beatings, humiliation, nakedness, crucifixion. And now as we pick up our passage and his death is imminent, he's facing separation from his father for the first time in all eternity. As I looked at this passage, I thought to myself, There are a number of questions that arise out of this that I don't know if we as Christians spend a lot of time looking at or have developed answers if people ask us about it. So I wanted to take the time to do a little bit of thought on those four questions that I came up with. The first one is, why did Jesus have to die? Probably seems like a fairly straightforward question, but it's not without controversy. Um, How many in the room have heard somebody say that, how could he be a loving God if he murdered his own son? Has anybody ever heard anybody say that? A few nods, a couple of hands. Or perhaps people have said, there's got to be a better way for redemption than something so violent. Has anybody heard anybody say that? Yeah, a few more people. Well, I want to remind you what Scripture says about God. He says, it says in Deuteronomy that his ways 
I'm sorry, in Isaiah, that his ways are higher than ours. And it says in Deuteronomy that he is perfect and just. So I don't think that we're necessarily in a position to question God's plan for redemption. But why did Jesus have to die is still the question. Well, if we look at Romans 6.23, it tells us that the wages of sin is death. If we define death as separation from God, and God being a holy God and a just judge, he can't ignore the sin, he can't waive the penalty for it, he can't even be in the presence of it. So if our sin separates us from God, and separation from God is death, then clearly we can see that the wages of sin is death, as Romans 6.23 says. In addition, Hebrews 9.22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Hebrews 9 spends a while talking about the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, where the high priest would cleanse himself with the blood of lambs or goats, some other animal, not his own blood, but he would cleanse himself and he would enter behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies, hoping that it was enough, hoping that he could stand before God's presence. But Hebrews 9 contrasts this to Jesus, who went into the very presence of God through his, the cleansing power of his own blood. And he didn't have to question whether or not he was going to be worthy walking in there. See, when people pay the price for their sin, they are separated from God for eternity. When we allow Jesus to pay the price for our sin, then we can enter into God's presence. There was only one that was worthy to pay that price, and it was Jesus. So that's why Jesus had to die. The second question was, who did Jesus die for? Now, again, this seems like a pretty straightforward question, but one I think that still has some controversy. Now, I am not talking about the controversy that or the debate that people have between whether God died for the sins, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, or whether he just died for a group called the elect. Uh, for people that are familiar with Calvinism, that point is called limited atonement. That's not what I mean. That's not the question that I'm asking. I'm asking who, as in what kind of people, did Jesus die for? Jesus died for the ungodly. He died for sinners. Romans 5, 6, and 8 says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died for those who were dead in their sins. Colossians chapter 2 13 through 15 says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And lastly, Jesus died for his enemies. Picking back up in Romans 5, 10 and 11, it says, For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. I think we can debate the scope of Jesus' atonement. 
But I don't think we can debate the power of Jesus' atonement. It's unlimited in power. You see, there is no person who's been too bad for Jesus to cover what they've done. There's no point too late in life for Jesus to erase that debt. You look at the thief on the cross. So no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, or how long you've lived that way, Jesus has covered that debt. The third question, which after I asked it, I was kind of sorry I did. This took a lot of research, and there are respected Bible scholars, Orthodox, Evangelical scholars that don't necessarily agree on this question. So I want to say that I'm going to start with a little multiple choice on the next slide. I don't want you to raise your hands. I don't want you to yell out your answer. Um, But I want to say before I dive into this that this is definitely a secondary issue. It's something that believers can disagree on. But I also think it's important for us to think about these things and to think about what they mean should we take one position or the other. I'm going to present a position that um, seems to align with Scripture the best to me, and I'm going to have to present it somewhat briefly because of the time we have. I'm happy to talk about this or any of the other topics that I've flown through afterwards with anybody that wants to. You see, we talked about death being the separation of two things that belong together, the separation of God's creation from God through sin, And physical death is the separation of our body from our soul. They were meant to be together. And so when Jesus dies physically, we know where his body goes. Verse 46, I'm sorry, not verse 46, but earlier in our passage, it talks about him being placed into a tomb cut in the rock, a tomb that hadn't been used, a tomb that was owned by Joseph of Arimathea. But what about his spirit or his soul? In verse 46, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But where did Jesus' spirit go? So here are the five choices I came up with. And I would believe that there may be and there are Christians that are going to be in heaven one day that might hold any of these five positions right now, including, I haven't thought about it, don't care. But I want to talk about them. Because I like controversy, apparently. So Jesus went to heaven. I think that's one that people believe, for sure. I found some people who have this position online that I really respect. So even though I'm not taking it, it seems like it's probably defensible. Why do I think it's dubious? Well, the morning of the resurrection, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. And Jesus says to her, do not hold on to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. The second option, that Jesus went to hell. Oops, I skipped right through it. I think that's also dubious. But why do a lot of people believe that, especially people who haven't done much studying on it? I didn't find too many scholars that held this position. But it's in the Apostles' Creed. It's in some of the other creeds. It says, after he died, he descended to hell. And on the third day was rose again. So, 
Hell in, in scriptures is generally described as a place prepared for Satan and his angels, as well as those who reject God, but only after the final judgment. I think part of this confusion for people who might have thought of that as soon as they were asked the question was maybe the confusion of the difference between hell and Hades. The King James Version always translated Hades as hell. Um, and certainly older Christians and some of the other creeds would have been using that translation. And, you know, perhaps it's just not the best translation from the Greek or the Hebrew in that case where the Old Testament might say Sheol. The third option, Jesus went to Hades. I think this is actually the most probable of the options. Psalm 16, 9 and 10, this is David, says, Therefore my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body also will rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. This is explained to us a little bit in Acts chapter 2 by Peter. He says, Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. His tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. There was one particular person that I found helped me understand this position, and so some of the things I'm going to give you right now are from him. His name is Joe Rigney, and he's a professor at Bethlehem Seminary. So I want to give him credit, but if when I explain it, it doesn't make any sense to you, I'll take all the blame for that. I think that's only fair. Um, but to try to explain this just a little better, in the Old Testament, Sheol is described as the place of the souls of the dead. We see in certain passages that both the righteous, like Jacob in Genesis 37, uh, and Samuel in 1 Samuel 28, um, as well as the wicked, Psalm 31, 17. In the New Testament, the Hebrew world, Sheol, is translated as Hades. And the description in the Old and New Testament ends up bearing some resemblance to Greek mythology and the place of Hades in Greek mythology. There's a lot of things talked about in Scripture. Um, Numbers tells us that it's under the earth. Isaiah tells us it's like a city with gates. Job says it has bars. It's a land of darkness where shades and shadowy souls of men dwell, says Isaiah. It's a land of forgetfulness in Psalm 88. It is a place where no work is done and no wisdom exists, according to Ecclesiastes 9.10. And maybe most significantly, Sheol is a place where no one praises God. And you'll see that in Psalm 6, 88, 115, and Isaiah 38 as well. But probably the best description we have of it might come from the New Testament parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Now it's always, or potentially dangerous, to look at parables as something literal, so we want to keep that in mind. But Jesus tells this parable, and like the Hades we see in Greek mythology, it appears that there's sort of two sections to Hades in the Bible, at least in this parable. See, if you're familiar with the parable, the rich man and Lazarus both die. Lazarus is carried off by angels to Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side. The rich man goes into Hades proper where he is tormented, and the fires of 
cause him anguish. There's certainly a lot of mystery about what this place is and what it's like, but we get a little bit of a picture. It takes shape if we look at all those passages, if we look at the parable. So if we believe this, then those who died before Christ came and redeemed souls, paid that debt that couldn't be paid, it appears that even the righteous who died could not be in God's presence, with few exceptions. Some people might, this isn't in my notes actually, but it comes to my mind now from some of my research, some people might immediately think of Moses and Elijah being at the transfiguration. And well, how can that be? That happened before all of this. But if you remember, Elijah didn't die. And Moses was buried by God himself. And in Jude kind of alludes that he might have been resurrected. They never... We're not sure, but all of this stuff obviously is difficult, and that's why I said sometimes I wish I never asked this question. So I think it's important, though, to talk about even controversial items, and why do I want to talk about it? Because I think we need to remember that when Jesus died, he didn't just die for your sins. I think oftentimes we try to personalize it. We try to make it personal to us, but in doing so, we sometimes tend to minimalize it. Jesus broke the chains of death. He allowed all of the righteous from years past, liberating them to be free to be with God. He paid the sins of all that are to come ahead of us that put their trust in him, that accept his free gift. It is so much bigger than Jesus died for my sins. And just thinking about his separation from his body, his separation from his father, and the anguish that he went through so that he was literally asking God beforehand to take it from him if he could. He was sweating drops of blood. This was not a small feat, a small thing that Jesus did on our behalf. So I do have a couple of slides that I didn't want to leave up too long, but this is a slide that tends to explain a little bit of the view of Hades I was uh, putting forth from Joe Rigney. And again, this is pulled from a lot of biblical text. It is not scripture, um, but seems to make a lot of sense if you pull those scriptures together. And I also wanted to share just a piece of Eastern Orthodox art. It is really common in Eastern Orthodox culture to think of Jesus' death and resurrection as not being an individual act, but something where he is pulling those people out of death, out of the grip that the grave has on them. And so this picture shows him grabbing Adam and Eve from their, from their tombs. Um, and of course, all of the icons of Eastern religion have their, their place and their problems. But just to kind of expose us who generally don't look at those sort of things and see those sort of things, there's a reason why all of that art exists and it is the way it is. So... Where did Jesus go when he died? Following his death, Jesus liberates the Old Testament faithful from the power of death. And there's some verses there on the screen. Um, All my notes will be up on the, the web following the sermon as well, and we can certainly have a conversation about it. But the reason I wanted to go through that was to get to my fourth question. What did Jesus' death accomplish? So to summarize, I think the four things that I have here 
The first question we talked about, why did Jesus have to die? Well, Jesus paid the price for the sins of all who accept his offer to do so. This is the gospel. Jesus' death, his shedding of blood, it accomplished what we could not. As I said before, when people pay the price for their sins, they spend eternity separated from God. So, I certainly urge anyone here who hasn't accepted Jesus' offer to pay that debt for you to do so. If you have friends and family members who haven't accepted, encourage them to do so. I've met people who say, if I'm man enough, because they were men in this case, to do the sin, then I'm man enough to take the punishment. Trust me, you're not. Only Jesus could take that wrath and come out the other side. We do not want to be separated. As 1 Peter 3.18 tells us, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Secondly, what Jesus accomplished through his death, he made us spiritually alive. We read Colossians 2.13-15 earlier, so I won't read the whole thing now. But it talks about being dead in your sin and God making you alive in Christ, forgiving your sins, canceling the charge that was against you and nailing them to the cross. Third, Jesus allows us access to God the Father. That discussion in Hebrews chapter 9 about the priest entering the Holy of Holies, he went on behalf of the people. No longer do we need an earthly mediator. No longer do we need to be separated from God. In our passage today, Luke 23, 45, the second half of the verse, it says, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Like God reached down from heaven and ripped that curtain apart, so no longer were the people of God separated from God himself. God had come in Jesus to dwell with his people, the incarnation, and now God was also dwelling with his people through that separation being removed. Hebrews 4.16 tells us this. It says, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. No longer do we need to be afraid when entering God's presence like the high priests of old. We don't have to wonder if we're worthy because we know we're not. But we don't have to wonder about it because we know that when God looks upon us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. We're covered by his blood. So the high priest went in covered by the blood of goats, wondering if he was worthy. We're covered by the blood of Christ. And because of that, we are. And finally, Jesus allows us to go to heaven when we die. You see, whether or not you believe the position that the righteous before Christ had to go to Abraham's side to this waiting place that, while maybe called paradise by some, was not directly in the presence of God. We, because of what Jesus has done on our behalf, are able to enter heaven when we die. But I also don't want you to forget that that offer is available to those who you might at least expect to take it, like the thief on the cross. So, that being said, 
all that, I guess you could call it teaching, except for the stuff that uh, isn't straight out of Scripture. You don't have to call that teaching. That's just uh, information. But switching from teaching maybe now to preaching, which is more encouraging. And I want to encourage you in this, that the death of Jesus and all that we know about it, all that we've learned about it, all that we'll continue to learn about it, should change the way we live. I think it's important when we read Scripture, when we study things, to push past head knowledge into heart change. And Jesus certainly tried to do this with all of the teaching he did in his ministry. That was the point, really, of so many of his parables. A lot of people say, I've heard this said, you can show hands or nod, not very uh, interactive crowd, I've got to take lessons from Bernie on that. But have you ever heard anybody say that, you know, all those hypocritical Christians that are still going around sinning, they're making a mockery of what God did on the cross. You're cheapening God's grace if you don't act perfectly. Um, I'm not sure if that's true or not, but here's what I am sure is true, that the Christians, including myself, who are making a mockery of God's grace, his love, and his forgiveness, are the ones who maybe aren't giving a whole lot of effort on some of these commands. First one I have on the screen. John 13, 34 and 35 says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So how are we doing at loving those around us? How are we doing at loving like Jesus did? How are we doing at loving sinners? People who are dead in, our, in their sins. How are we doing at loving our enemies? How are we doing at annoying, loving the annoying person at work or at church? How are we doing at loving the driver in front of us who's making us late? Or whatever it is that makes it difficult for you to love somebody. And the second command that came to mind Ephesians 4:32 Be kind and compassionate to one another forgiving each other just as Christ just as in Christ God forgave you Do we forgive those around us do we forgive those who wrong us or do we hold grudges I'm reminded when I looked at these of a few of Jesus other parables One of them was the parable of the unforgiving debtor. If you're familiar with that story, the king forgives a man a large debt, and when he leaves, he sees along his travels a man who owes him a small amount of money. And he begins to choke him because he can't pay. Turns him in, has him thrown into prison. Well, his fellow servants see this. They take him back to the king. The king calls him a wicked servant. It says that he is taken off to be tortured and held in prison until he can pay the debt. And Jesus ends that parable with these words. I'm actually going to pick it up a little before what I just repeated there. Matthew 18, 32 through 35 says, You wicked servant, I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? 
In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. And then here's how Jesus ends the parable. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So I was really convicted that the people who are making a mockery of what Christ did on the cross are the people who are walking around not loving those around us, not or them, not forgiving those around them. And I am certainly guilty of that. Love because God loved you. Forgive because God forgives you. Start every day thankful for what Jesus has done for you. It's kind of where I ended up with the big idea of this sermon. I wanted to share with you three resources that I've just, they've been on my list and I haven't been reading them yet, but I'm planning on it. Two of the books there are by Bob Goff, Love Does and Everybody Always. I haven't heard anybody talk about this man without being in awe of the love he brings to everybody he meets in everyday situation. And the other one, you probably might not be able to read it, but it's inexpressible. And it's Michael Card's newest book, Defining Hesed, God's Love, God's Loving Kindness, which is, uh, I'll suggest you talk to Terry later about that. Really hard to define, but he spent 10 years writing a book trying to do it justice. And he says in there, and that story I shared at the very beginning that we'll get back to is the opening of this book. But he says in there that really the whole act that God did by sending his son and then having him die on a cross is the greatest example of God's love that there is. And that book is really a practical guide to understanding it and living that way. As I said before, I don't preach that often here, two to three times a year. But as I looked back, I had the opportunity to preach on our core value of love when we were going through our core value series. I had the opportunity to preach through John 13, 34, and 35, the command that I put on there from Jesus on loving one another. And then I was scheduled to preach on the death of Jesus, probably the greatest act of love in all of history. I have to believe that it's probably not a mistake. God's probably trying to get my attention. And the time I spend preparing and delivering those messages um, was certainly God's plan to help me to be more a loving person. I hope and pray that each of those messages has been able to edify someone else as they've heard. But I really believe that it was a message for me. So again, my encouragement for you this Easter, love because God loves you. I think I have it on a slide. Forgive because God forgives you. Start every day thankful for what Jesus' death has done for you. The older I get, the longer I'm a Christian, the more I study scripture. Sometimes it doesn't result in a deepening love for Christ. Sometimes it ends up like these two parables. The prodigal son. The prodigal son now reminds me not to be like the older brother. Remember, he resented his younger brother coming home. 
He was upset for the stuff he was getting. He refused to celebrate his reconciliation, refused to forgive his brother, drove a wedge between himself and his father. The parable of the workers in the vineyard. Remember how upset the workers were that had worked the full day for the people that showed up at the end and got the full day's wages. I don't want to be a person at the end of my life who says, God, I I believed in you my whole life. I served you my whole life. How can this person come to you at the last minute and get all the same things? You know, we want to believe and remember every day that is nothing that we do that merits this. Doesn't matter what you've done for God. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. Doesn't matter if your parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents were Christians. You don't deserve the gift that you've been given. You don't deserve Jesus to die in your place. I know some of us here have also been Christians for a long time. So maybe, perhaps, the message is for more than just me. Love because God loves you. Forgive because God forgives you. And maybe most importantly, start every day thankful for what Jesus' death has done for you. Please pray with me. Father, I pray that you would help us to love as you have loved us, so that people will know that you are disciples. Or that story I shared to open about the woman who forgave and adopted the, the boy who killed her son is just one of thousands around the globe where Christians have taken the call seriously to love like you loved, to forgive like you forgive. to exhibit Hesed in their lives. Or the impact that that has on the people who are loved, the people who are forgiven, changes lives. Remind us that we don't change lives generally by preaching and teaching. We don't change lives generally by our work ethic. We don't change lives generally by being perfectly righteous and upholding every law and command that you've put out. We generally change lives the way you did, through love and forgiveness. Lord, I pray that you would take these words that were so imperfectly written and so imperfectly said. Take that seed that might have been sown, Lord, and work it out with your grace. Lord, I pray also for the rest of the service that it would be honoring to you. Lord, I pray for the offering that we'll take, that you would use it for your glory and for your kingdom. Lord, we love you, and most of all, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the incarnation, for his life, for the suffering that he endured, for his death, and for his resurrection that we'll celebrate tomorrow. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.